If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the letter to the Galatians, where we will pick up where we left off from last week. As we go to the Lord's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang um, your word about Jesus bearing the cross for us in our place on our behalf, Father, that does give us reason to ask, what wondrous love is this? Father, we thank you for the love that we see displayed in your word and that your spirit applies to our lives. And so, Father, would your word and spirit now be at work giving us understanding of your truth and a growing desire and ability to put it into practice for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. For we pray in your name. Amen. Well, you can see on the uh, sermon outline page, there is no sermon outline. I'll give it to you in just a moment. It didn't come uh, from the text until after it went to print. And not only that, but uh, the title didn't come. That was a stand-in title. Um, So if you want to change it to the priority of the promise, instead of first the promise, then the law, but the priority of the promise. And as I hope you will see, it'll tie in with where we're going to be next week. Here we are at week nine in our ongoing series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. Why Galatians now? Well, Galatians, as you know, focuses on the gospel and it's always a present need for the church to be reminded to fix our attention upon Jesus and the good news about Him. Indeed, the gospel both creates and sustains the church, and corporate worship here on the Lord's Day reorients all of us to the gospel. It's the beginning of each new week we are reminded of who God is and who man is and what sin is and has done and what, who Christ is and what He has done and how we are summoned to faith and repentance. Indeed, corporate worship is a re-presentation of the gospel. We continue to forget. We continue to need to be reminded. As I've been saying for many people through the years, the hearing of Galatians, the reading of Galatians, the study of Galatians has served as a major breakthrough in their spiritual life as they've discovered, or as the case may be, rediscovered, that Christianity was not first and foremost about what they had to do for God, but rather first and foremost what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Remember, this letter is being written to churches in the Roman province of Galatia in modern-day Turkey. Paul, the apostle, had preached the gospel. He had planted churches, and now he's having to write those churches to encourage them to defend the gospel encounter those who are changing the gospel by teaching that Christians must obey and keep the Old Testament law in order to be accepted by God. Remember, the false teachers, the Judaizers, as they will be called, are not saying that faith in Christ is not necessary. What they are saying is faith in Christ is not enough. It's the not enough that Paul is responding to. 
Paul, in the first two chapters, provides a personal defense of his gospel ministry. It's an autobiography. In these middle two chapters, three and four, he's providing a theological defense of the gospel message. And in the last two chapters, he's providing a practical application of the gospel's message to his readers' lives. It starts off in autobiography, moves into theology, and ends with ethics. What God has done, someone has said about Galatians, teaches us what we should believe and how we should live. The main purpose of Galatians, this letter, is to draw attention to and defend the truth of the gospel. Indeed, as we've been seeing time and time again, the theme of Galatians is faith, specifically justification by faith. Three times in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul mentions that. Here, throughout Galatians, we see running through this six-chapter letter, this teaching about salvation from sin and death that characterize the work of the Reformers, that it is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and all for the glory of God alone. As I mentioned a moment ago, in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's interesting, he repeats it three times in that one verse, and yet you will see as we go through Galatians over and over again, Paul is coming back to this same truth, this central truth of the gospel. Indeed, Luther writes, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Interesting, isn't it? This truth, this doctrinal truth, is actually going to work itself out in how people live. Most necessary, he continues, it is therefore that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Well, today, by God's enabling grace, we will continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel in general, and justification by faith in particular. And that, my friends, is so very important. Why? Well, you know, we've been celebrating, as it were, the start, if you can call it that, of the Protestant Reformation. You would think that the, um, the church would have gotten this right. But as I've been reading about current controversies and current things going on, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is, is under attack this very day. People think it's too good to be true. It's hard to believe. Yes, it is hard to believe, but it's nonetheless what God has revealed to us in his word. And I think... Paul is saying over and over and over again, he wants to beat the drum. He wants to beat it into our heads. It's under attack. And as we will see as the letter continues, this is a hugely practical doctrine for how we are to live in a sinful and fallen world with the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of eternal life, the assurance of God being for us and not against us. Well, today we're going to begin with a baseball story. 
This past week, some of us may have watched the end of the World Series and saw the Astros beat the Dodgers in seven games. Well, regretfully, this is not going to be a story about the Reds. Rather, it's a story about one of their National League Central Division rivals. The winners of the World Series last year, the Chicago Cubs. This illustration comes from Mark Knoll, a church historian who taught at Wheaton at Notre Dame and is now teaching at Regent College in Vancouver, um, British Columbia. And he wrote an article years ago called Diamond Devotional in the Reformed Journal. And here's what he said. For two glorious summers, the Chicago Cubs taught baseball fans the fundamentals of Reformation theology. First, the Cubs made a trade for Vance Law and started him at third base. Then a few months later, marvelous to say, they brought first baseman Mark Grace up from the minor leagues. There they were, right next to each other in the batting order, Law and Grace. But they were in the proper order too. First Grace, batting in the fifth position, and then Law. For as Paul explained to the Galatians, God gave grace to Abraham before he gave Moses the law. And there they stood on the baseball diamond, grace and law, holding down opposite corners of the infield. Opposing batters would smash the ball to third where law would knock it down and throw it over to grace at first for the out. Reformation theology in action. Law to grace to retire the side. Well, that story of these two players on the Chicago Cubs, uh, Vance uh, Law and Mark Grace, I think sets us up for this week and next week as we explore the relationship between the law and the promise. Today we're going to look at verses 15 through 18, the priority of the promise. The priority of the promise, or you could say it, the precedence of the promise. Next week, in verses 19 through at least 22, we will look at the purpose of the law. Today is negative, what the law cannot do. Next week will be positive, what the law can and indeed the law does. Now here's a potential problem. Paul has been saying that justification and the Holy Spirit come by faith and not by works. He's made an argument thus far both from experience and Scripture in chapter 3, and he's shown that Christ has taken the curse in order for His people to receive the blessing. Paul, however, has a potential problem. By setting justification by faith against the works of the law, he's in danger of pitting Moses against Christ. Because salvation by grace makes radical claims. Questions are going to come and are sure to follow. So in our passage today, Paul begins to address a major question having to do with the relationship of the promise and the law. That being, what is the relationship of a Christian to the law of God? Now our approach to the text this morning will be to look at promises made and promises kept. Promises made, and there are going to be two parts to promises kept. Promises kept as in unchanged, and then finally promises kept as in fulfilled. So it's promises made, 
promises kept in that they are unchanged, and promises made in that they are fulfilled. Join with me as I read in chapter 3, and I'll back it all the way up to uh, verse 10 to set the stage for 15 through 18. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We're going to start with the last verse, verse 18. Promises made. Remember, in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 and 17 in particular, we see the promise to Abraham and to his offspring. Abraham was promised descendants, a land. He was promised to be blessed so that he himself would be a blessing to the nations. It was a promise to Abraham, but it continued to Abraham's offspring. Paul's point in bringing this up is that God's covenant promises referred to someone in particular. That immediate literal reference, of course, is to the land as we heard in Genesis 15. But land and seed, as the Bible will continue to unveil are ultimately spiritual. This promise had a reference to a singular offspring or seed that is Christ. And he makes that clear in the last verse of the chapter. Abraham's offspring. But Jesus, this promise is not made to a multitude, but to one. Now, Paul hasn't misread Genesis. He knows that offspring is a collective singular noun, meaning many individuals. But here he's taking time and attention to say, no, it's, it's one, because Jesus is going to be, that promised Messiah is the offspring par excellence, because the scriptures make clear that only Jesus was fully obedient to the Father. It's a promise to Abraham and to his offspring, but it's a promise of an inheritance. 
It's not described here in full, but it's that, that justification gives us the inheritance. And the indwelling of the Spirit is, is proof of this justification. This inclusion of the Gentiles, this promise of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we read in 1 Peter 1 about an inheritance that believers have that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Notice in this promises made that once again we're faced with an either-or situation. Again, verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Well, what is a promise in this particular context? What is the promise in general that Abraham is given by God? I hope we've already seen it. It is free. It is unconditional. There are no strings attached when God calls Abram and he establishes a covenant with Abram. And when circumcision comes later as a sign and seal of that covenant, there's no strings. This is what God said He would do. Have you noticed if you give something to someone because what you have promised, it's not because of their performance. But if you give someone something because of what they have done, it's not on the basis of an unconditional promise. Once again, Paul is drawing attention to it's either grace or works. It's either going to come by works of the law or it's going to come by faith, trust, and belief in the promise. Because this result is either due to the giver's promise alone or it's going to have to be due to the receiver's performance. You can't have it both ways. Now usually when we think of promises made and promises kept, we don't think about what takes place between the making of a promise and the fulfillment or the completion of the promise. Well, what has to happen? Well, the promise has to remain unchanged, unaltered, or in the, way, the, the words of our text, not annulled. In other words, promises kept unchanged. Now thus far in chapter 3, there have been arguments from both experience. Remember Paul asked the question, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, he, he's asking them about their own life, but he also then begins to go to Scripture and provides an argument from Scripture. Well, here is another argument he is making in verse 17 as we work backwards. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, often in Scripture, there's an argument from the greater to the lesser. We read in Romans chapter 8, If he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has done this, will he not also do that? But sometimes the argument is from the lesser to the greater. We occasionally will we'll pray this in our prayer. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If humans can give good gifts 
How much more will the Father give? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And here is that as he provides an example from everyday life. In verse 17, and this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And that is going to be an explanation for verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. A man-made covenant. In other words, a last will and testament. Not a business contract entered into by agreement. Rather, it declares what a party intends to do. And it declares what God has intended to do. Now, a lot of scholarship has, has wrestled with, well, what's going on in this man-made covenant? Because it, are we looking at Roman law, Greek law? Are we looking at Jewish legal systems? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Paul is saying uh, to give a human example that all of you readers in Galatia would understand, would, would know. Because what matters, Paul is saying, is that this this man-made covenant cannot be annulled, canceled, called off, withdrawn, ended, terminated, dissolved, rescinded, invalidated. The desires, the promises expressed in a will by the one who makes it are unalterable. Now, to be sure, today, someone who makes a last will and testament can change That They can do amendments or codicils or whatever the the legal terminology is. But the point is, especially once the death of the testator, the death of the person that made the will, you can't change it. Anybody ever heard of situations of contested wills? How often are contested wills um, result in the person getting it changed? Rarely, if ever. Why? Because the person who makes the promise, who who says, this is what I want to happen, it goes. It goes. It's an argument from the lesser human court to the greater. If if this happens on the human level, that you can't change what the the desire of the uh, person who makes the last will and testament, if you can't change that in the human level, how much more when God makes it? Can it not change? Paul is driving home the point here that the law cannot change the promise. Again, verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. It's the key point. The law does not annul the covenant promise. 430 years has passed the length of captivity in Egypt. The point is centuries have passed. Church father Augustine said this, if the law justified, Abraham was not justified since he lived long before the law. Abraham was justified by faith. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. God's promise would be kept. His plan would be accomplished or God himself would die just like the animals in that strange ceremony of animals being cut in half and a smoking pot and a flaming torch 
would go through. But since God cannot die, it is impossible for His promise to fail. We also see in our text that the unchangeable promise that God has made with Abraham was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Christ and it is being fulfilled in all of those who are in Christ. Look with me at verse 16 again. It does not say unto your two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And with these three little words, Paul is bringing to bear all of the scripture that pointed forward to Christ, the promised one, who is Christ. Who is Christ? Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. The New Testament has revealed Christ. The promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. Paul can say that they are fulfilled just by making this statement, referring to Christ. Go back again to verses 13 and 14. Christ, the one in whom the promise is fulfilled, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, ready, the blessing, the promise, the grace coming to Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, and again, Paul is speaking as a Jew who knows Jesus, might receive the promised spirit through faith. And again, Paul is starting to what he will later display more fully in Ephesians, speak about all the blessings that are in Christ, that are yours by faith. The promise is made by God and the promise is kept unchangeable by God and it is kept fulfilled by God. The law cannot do away with the promise, but as we will see next week, the law will serve the promise. So in our text, Paul has continued to beat the gospel truth of justification by faith and not by works of the law into our heads. He's saying it over and over and over again. Why? It's hard to believe. But here it is over and over and over again. An unconditional promise. So here we are. Made aware of an unconditional promise that God has made to Abraham, to Christ, and to us. And what are we to do with this unconditional promise? Now, this is not a conditional promise. Kids, if, if mom and dad say, if you mow the yard this afternoon, I will buy your favorite book. That's a promise, but it's a condition. You mow the yard, you get the book. This is an unconditional promise. And my friends, you can answer this. What do you do with an unconditional promise? What do you do? You believe it. You believe it. You believe it. 
For a promise to bring a result, it only needs to be believed. But for a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we receive every spiritual blessing that's bound up in God's promise to Abraham. Blessings of which we will sing about in just a moment. Indeed, the fundamental promise of Scripture is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that promise is fulfilled in Christ. As He's the only one that can make sinful people rightly related to a holy and righteous God. Friends, as we dwell on and think about more and more the promises of God in Christ. And as we reflect upon this great promise to Abraham to bless him, to make him a a blessing to the nations, to give him an inheritance. And as we see that coming down into the person and work of Jesus and then from Jesus to all of those who were united by faith to him. What are we to do with that promise? Believe it. Believe it. Believe it. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we acknowledge that it is often hard to understand. It is at times hard to understand. But Father, we are thankful that in this letter that we are looking at over and over and over again, we are being reminded that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, and all for your glory alone. It is not by what we do. Oh, Father, to be sure there are things that, are, that we do, and that flows from being rightly related to you by faith. Father, would you give us a growing desire and ability to believe your promises and to rest in them today and into eternity. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The promise of God is